Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 10th, 2016. I don't believe how fast this year is passing by. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In our last segment of the Protocols of Satan, we're going to get right into this, we saw their authors boast of the weakening of the governments of the West through the spread of liberalism, a political phenomenon leading to the spread of the perceptibly democratic governments which the Jews have trumpeted, but which they never believed in themselves. They understood that if the West embraced democracy through liberalism, that they could then subvert democracy and seize the relinquished reins of power by the power of gold. They knew that through their own control of money, something which they always had in Europe, once power was taken from the kings and princes of the nobility, they could control the masses through the use of money. And in one of these upcoming segments, we will discuss a brief history of the Jewish control of money in Europe, leading up to the time of their emancipation. So in the last lines which we encountered in the Protocols of Satan, their authors had first boasted that in our day the power of gold has replaced liberal rulers, then explaining how they would exercise that power. They boasted further that our might lies in our right lies in might the word right is an abstract idea unsusceptible of proof and of course for the jew that's absolutely true because he rejects the word of god and they go on to say that this word means nothing more than give me what i desire so that i may have evidence that i am stronger than you so the law for the Jew, the governing law, is the law of the jungle, the same law we see govern the Negro and the Chinaman. The devils then asked, rather rhetorically, where does right begin, and where does it end? And from that point, in protocol number one, we shall continue. In a state, we won't continue for long, just for one paragraph, but we will continue, in a state with a poorly organized government, and where the laws are insignificant, and the ruler has lost his dignity as the result of the accumulation of liberal rights, I, meaning the author of the protocols, I find a new right, namely, the right of might to destroy all existing order and institutions to lay hands on the law, to alter all institutions, and to become the ruler of those who have voluntarily, liberally renounced for our benefit the rights to their own power, meaning the noble families of Europe. We have already read in the protocols that the right of might was exercised through the power of gold or money. Therefore, diminishing government power through liberalism means the weakening of government resolve by buying representatives 
and through the process of party politics, where issues of any magnitude are endlessly argued, a consensus, a true consensus, is rarely found, and it is increasingly impossible for states to protect themselves from a public opinion which has been formed by the Jewish-controlled media. Adolf Hitler spoke on the weaknesses of the parliamentary system from a different perspective, where in Volume 1, Chapter 3 of Mein Kampf, he relates his observations on the necessary qualities of leadership as he followed political life in Vienna as a young man. There he described the vulnerability of men who enter into political life without first having developed a firm foundation in learning as a basis for a firm conviction with which they could stand in support of definite principles. Speaking of the paths taken by politicians who lack such a foundation, he aptly describes what we may consider to be the typical modern politician, where he says in part, Should such a person, to the misfortune of all decent people, succeed in becoming a parliamentary deputy, it will be clear from the outset that for him the essence of political activity consists in a heroic struggle to keep permanent hold on this milk bottle as a source of livelihood for himself and his family. So Hitler understood that most politicians only wanted to be on the tit, as we used to say back in New Jersey when I was in state government. The more his wife and children are dependent on him, the more stubbornly will he fight to maintain for himself the representation of his parliamentary constituency. For that reason, any other person who gives evidence of political capacity is his personal enemy. In every new movement, he will apprehend the possible beginning of his own downfall, and everyone who is a better man than himself will appear to him in the light of a menace. I shall subsequently deal more fully with the problem to which this kind of parliamentary vermin give rise. And of course, we will stop there. And Adolf Hitler has many criticisms of the parliamentary or democratic form of government, which I am sure we will bring to light further in a series. We cannot take the time required to examine the workings of every liberal government, or all of the workings of any liberal government. But when the United States was in its formative years, and in rebellion against the English king, the ideal that a man serve his people at his own expense was prevalent among the people, as it was considered to be an honor to be appointed to represent one's people. At this time, meaning the mid-1700s, many Christians still believed that service to one's community was service to God. Therefore, in Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation, we read the following. No state shall be represented in Congress by less than two nor more than seven members. And no person shall be capable of being a delegate 
for more than three years in any term or any period of six years. And in other words, no single person was allowed to serve in the Federal Congress for more than half of each six-year period. That's built-in term limits. Nor shall any person, being a delegate, be capable of holding any office under the United States for which he or another for his benefit receives any salary, fees, or emolument of any kind. There was no compensation of any sort from the federal government for representatives who are basically politicians. Each state shall maintain its own delegates in a meeting of the states while they act as members of the committee of the states. And, in other words, each state shall maintain its own delegates. Individual states were able to compensate their representatives if and as they desired. The decision was left to them. However, when the Second Federation was formed under a new U.S. Constitution in 1789, things changed. And we may perceive the influences of the money power infiltrating the political apparatus. The first sentence of Article 1, Section 6 of the United States Constitution says, The representatives and the senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. The term limits set forth in the Articles of Confederation were gone, and the representatives of government were able to immediately begin making their own laws regarding their compensation. At first it was a seemingly modest 6 or $7 a day. And by 1918, I'm sorry, by 1818, it was $8 a day. They had inflation back then, too. That these sums were paid per diem leads one to believe that representatives only received them for the days in which Congress assembled. However, the first United States Congress was convened for over 17 months during its designated two-year term. So the associated offices, senator, representative, became almost immediately full-time positions. And while six or eight dollars a day sounds like a modest sum, according to a publication titled Trends in the American Economy in the 19th Century by the Conference on Research in Income and Wealth, published in 1960 at the Princeton University Press, and I have a link here to the website, the average farm salaries in Virginia and the Carolinas in 1830 were 6 or $7 per month. Although farm workers in other states fared somewhat better and made as much as $12 per month in Georgia, but farm salaries in the non-slave states were no higher. Our source tells us that the rate paid farm labor monthly with board in Illinois was $12 as compared with 8 to $9 for Ohio and Indiana in 1818 and 1830. And the highest salaries were earned in frontier states such as Louisiana, or Illinois. So you can make $12 a month there, but in Ohio, New York, the Carolinas, Virginia, you were getting eight or nine bucks a month. 
So almost immediately, comparing these to the congressional salaries, almost immediately the elected representatives of the people were earning compensation many times greater than the average working citizen, the United States at that time being a very agrarian economy. By 1850, the rates were hardly 10% higher. Although by 1860, when the nation was about to be plunged into war, they ranged from about 11 to as much as $17 per month. However, Congress accordingly began to appoint itself regular salaries per annum, and starting at $3,000 a year in 1855, it was increased to 7,500 years by 1871, when the average farm boy still wasn't making 20 bucks a month. In 1942, Congress voted for itself a lucrative pension system, which was repealed for the war, but finally succeeded in 1946. So, congressmen and senators became federal employees just to collect the benefits. Amazingly, the propaganda in favor of the pension in 1946 was that it would encourage older members of Congress to retire, a situation which was entirely prevented by the term limits imposed in the Articles of Confederation, where they would have been forced to retire and go get real jobs. So where Hitler says that for many politicians, the essence of political activity consists in a heroic struggle to keep permanent hold on this milk bottle as a source of livelihood for himself and his family, we can see the development of that possibility in American politics in the formative years of this nation. The opportunity for the power of gold to replace the power of liberalism had fully developed along with it as term limits were eliminated and party politics supplanted the control of the state legislatures over their representatives in Congress. We are going to repeat the last paragraph of the Protocols, the one we just read, so that we can discuss other aspects of it. In a state with poorly organized government and where the laws are insignificant, and the ruler has lost his dignity as the result of the accumulation of liberal rights, I find a new right, namely the right of might to destroy all existing order and institutions, to lay hands on the law, to alter all institutions, and to become the ruler of those who have voluntarily, liberally renounced for our benefit the rights to their own power. I'm going to read a couple of pages from a source that we can often despise, which is Wikipedia. I wouldn't go to Wikipedia for any deep research, believe me. However, in this case, the information presented is commonly known and is fairly accurate. This is a modern example of exactly how a liberal government controlled by financial interests, can force radical changes in an institution, lay hands on the law, pervert the original intent of the law, and destroy the underfabric of a nation.
In the 1950s, most Southern Baptist Christians were taught, were being taught openly that racial separatism was a Christian, or is, I'm sorry, is a Christian principle, which it most certainly is. However, from that time, most of the Baptist organizations were becoming corrupted from that position and began teaching egalitarianism under the guise of Christianity. One of the last large institutions to resist this corruption was Bob Jones University in South Carolina. In fact, in the 1950s, the university clashed with the already famous Billy Graham over the acceptance of liberal evangelicals, and to its credit, it would not compromise its principles in the 1950s. The 1990s and, and this century were a different story. And they even began the slide to compromise in the 1970s. The university was founded by its namesake, a fundamentalist and conservative Christian evangelist and a friend of the populist politician William Jennings Bryant in of all places, Panama City, Florida, in 1927. But because of the financial difficulties of the Depression, it later moved to Cleveland, Tennessee, and then to its current home in Greenville, South Carolina. So here is an account given by Wikipedia, which follows the changes in university policy, which were forced on it by the government. Although BJU, Bob Jones University, had admitted Asians and other ethnic groups from its inception, and, and I could not find corroboration for that, although Wikipedia asserts it, there is no supporting evidence given for this assertion, but that's immaterial. It did not enroll African Americans or African students until 1971. From 1971 to 1975, BJU admitted only married blacks, although the Internal Revenue Service had already determined in 1970 that private schools with racially discriminatory policies were not entitled to federal tax exemption. The Jew laying his hands on the law. In 1975, the University Board of Trustees authorized a change in policy to admit black students, a move that occurred shortly before the announcement of the Supreme Court decision in Runyon v. McCrary, which prohibited racial exclusion in private schools. Now, now, I have a few comments before we proceed with this Wikipedia article. The IRS is a private agency which operates outside of the bounds of representative government and interprets laws as it desires with very little oversight. So the Jew indeed lays his hands on the laws, whether he likes them or not, or whether Jews in Congress made them or not is immaterial. In spite of public opinion, the Supreme Court does not have the power to create or enforce any laws. So, once again, and, and I don't know when exactly this became prevalent, but I remember reading in, in old history books about a case that Andrew Jackson didn't like, and a Supreme Court decision that Andrew Jackson didn't like, and he said, I don't know who they're going to get to enforce it. Meaning that 
he was not going to enforce it because the Supreme Court cannot create law. They have no power to create or enforce any laws. That attitude somehow changed in the 19th century. I don't know exactly when. I wouldn't doubt if it didn't change with the Jewish Supreme Court Justice, Louis Brandeis, or or sometime around there. But I don't know exactly when it changed. I would like to look into that one day. But the Supreme Court and the federal courts cannot make law. They can only interpret the law, and then it's up to Congress to act accordingly to express the wishes of the quote-unquote people, right? But the court can make all the decisions it wants, and a sitting president doesn't have to enforce them. The court has no power at all to put any weight behind its decisions. However, the media long ago seems to have convinced the people that it does have such power. A perception which actually, when you think about it, relieves the other branches of government from their own responsibilities. Congressmen don't have to care. Oh, the Supreme Court decided that. It's out of my hands. That's bullshit. That's not the way the nation was designed. So in this case, the protocols are fully correct. That the laws of the state or its constitution are insignificant when the Jew wants to lay hands on the law. The paradigm in practice, our government paradigm in practice, has never been the way it was designed. Wikipedia continues. However, in May of that year, 1975, in May of that year, BJU expanded rules against interracial dating and marriage. This is a Christian principle. In 1976, the Internal Revenue Service revoked the university's tax exemption retroactively. That's a, that's also illegal. That that's also that that fight over ex post facto laws was won by the populist side in the 19th century that the government can't make a law retroactive. But the IRS can, because the Jew has laid his hands on a law and, and perverted the entire nation. The Internal Revenue Service revoked the university's tax exemption retroactively to December 1st, 1970, on grounds that it was practicing racial discrimination. The case eventually was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1982. After Bob Jones lost the decision in 1983, the university chose to maintain its interracial dating policy, to their credit, and paid a million dollars in back taxes. Now, it's not explained how donations are taxable, since gifts are generally not taxable, but evidently some of the university's receipts must have become taxable without the exemption. I don't know how. The year following the court decision, contributions to the university declined by 13% because people would stop giving because they were no longer tax deductible for the donors. In 2000, following a media uproar prompted by the visit of presidential candidate George W. Bush to the university, Bob Jones III dropped the university's interracial dating rule announcing the change on CNN's Larry King Live. In the same year, Bob Jones III drew criticism. He's the great 
he, he's the grandson of the original Bob Jones, drew criticism when he reposted a letter on the university's webpage referring to Mormons and Catholics as cults, which call themselves Christian. And we would agree, but Bob Jones University soon joined the cult, as we shall see. So the real masters behind the scenes of the media and that is evident to us where the university president felt it necessary to pay homage to the Jews by appearing on a program operated by a prominent Jew in order to announce his repentance to Satan. That's exactly what happened. And I should say that the real masters behind the scenes are represented by the media. When Bush, a candidate for president, made his appearance at Bob Jones University, that same network, CNN, was the chorus leader of an immediate public outcry against the university's policies on racial issues. As Wikipedia continues, the situation is exacerbated because continual announcements of repentance were evidently necessary. In 2005, Stephen Jones, the great-grandson of the founder, became Bob Jones University's president on the same day that he received his Ph.D. from the school. Bob Jones III, his father, then took the title Chancellor. Sounds a little Hitler-esque, but we'll ignore that. In 2008, the university declared itself profoundly sorry for having allowed institutional policies to remain in place that were racially hurtful. That year, Bob Jones University enrolled students from 50 states and nearly 50 countries, probably begging them to come, representing diverse ethnicities and cultures. And the BJU administration declared itself committed to maintaining on the campus the racial and cultural diversity and harmony characteristic of the true Church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. Wikipedia then describes the public rewards that the university received for its capitulation. In 2011, the university became a member of the Transnational Association of Christian Colleges and Schools and reinstated intercollegiate athletics. So Bob Jones University, which we may consider to be one of the last stalwarts of Christian racial ethics in America was beaten into submission by the media, the IRS, and the courts. Then, once it relinquished its racial principles, it joined the sports idolatry cult, which is the fabric of most modern universities. We have only offered this because it is a very visible example of the undermining of institutions and the values which they represent and the overreaching of government agencies in the bureaucracy and basically interpreting the laws as they desire to meet their own political agenda. I don't see any IRS agency beating down the doors of the local benign brith lodge because it only accepts Jews. In Germany, Christianity was also undermined by the government, but in a far different way. Here we will let Adolf Hitler explain that.
from Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, which is an explanation of the reasons for the collapse of the Second Reich under the government of Bismarck, and of course we will only read it in part. Undoubtedly, no small amount of blame for the present unsatisfactory religious situation must be attributed to those who have encumbered the ideal of religion with purely material accessories and have thus given rise to an utterly futile conflict between religion and science. And as we have seen in this series, the academies of science in Europe were founded by speculative Freemasons who were enamored with the Jewish Kabbalah and the Jewish rabbis dominated the studies of the sciences from their conception. Even Hitler seems to have been unaware of this predicament. Continuing with Mein Kampf, In this conflict, victory will nearly always be on the side of science, even though after a bitter struggle, while religion will suffer heavily in the eyes of those who cannot penetrate beneath the mere superficial aspects of science. And we must add that those same people do not penetrate the allegorical nature of scripture, that the biblical accounts of creation are parables and are not at all meant to be scientific explanations of the creation. In truth, there is no conflict between Christianity and true scientific inquiry, but the precepts of theoretical science, which isn't really science at all, which is to be distinguished from actual scientific discovery, are also found in the Kabbalah and originate in anti-Christian and unscientific Jewish mysticism. And again, continuing with Mein Kampf, Hitler says, But the greatest damage of all has come from the practice of debasing religion as a means that can be exploited to serve political interests, or rather, commercial interests, because Adolf Hitler already knew that money ruled liberalism. The impudent and loudmouthed liars who do this make their profession of faith before the whole world in stentorian tones so that all poor mortals may hear. Not that, they are, not that they are ready to die for it if necessary, but rather that they may live all the better. They are ready to sell their faith for any political quid pro quo. For ten parliamentary mandates, they would ally themselves with the Marxists, who are the mortal foes of all religions and for a seat in the cabinet, they would go the length of wedlock with the devil, if the latter had not still retained some traces of decency. Hitler jesting that the devil is more honorable than the politicians. So with this, it should be no surprise that Christian institutions have been shaken from their principles by presumably or pre supposedly Christian governments, as we have seen in the case of Bob Jones University. As Hitler noticed a hundred years ago, the politicians only used their profession of religion for their own advancement and were actually serving commercial interests, the advantage of gold over liberal governments, which is explained here in the Protocols. And continuing with Mein Kampf, if religious life in pre-war Germany 
had a disagreeable savor for the mouths of many people. This was because Christianity had been lowered to base uses by political parties that called themselves Christian and because of the shameful way in which they tried to identify the Catholic faith with a political party. This substitution was fatal. It procured some worthless parliamentary mandates for the party in question, but the church suffered damage thereby. The consequences of that situation had to be borne by the whole nation, for the laxity that resulted in religious life set in at a juncture when everything was beginning to lose hold and vacillate, and the traditional foundations of custom and of morality were threatening to fall asunder. And then, in reference to the looming First World War, Hitler says, in conclusion of this statement, yet all those cracks and clefts in the social organism might not have been dangerous if no grave burdens had been laid upon it but they became disastrous when the internal solidarity of the nation was the most important factor in withstanding the storm of big events this continues to be the situation in germany to this very day it is an inescapable consequence of the usurpation of christian nations by the power of gold in germany right now angela merkel is flooding the country with aliens from africa and the middle east and her party is the cdu which is the christian democratic union a supposedly conservative party in germany so Angela Merkel's unchristian policy tarnishes not her politics, not her political party, it tarnishes Christianity because it's being conducted in the name of Christianity. Just so that we can see how the word Christian is sold as a political concept by people who are anything but Christian in their actions, we shall quote Wikipedia one more time, where it says of the Christian Democratic Union, the Christian Democratic Union of Germany is a Christian, democratic, and liberal-conservative, uh, uh, that's an oxymoron to me, political party in Germany. It is the major catch-all party of the center-right in German politics. Along with its Bavarian sister party, the Christian Social Union in Bavaria, the CDU forms the CDU-CSU grouping, also known as the Union in the Bundestag, so that they could maintain power in a majority. It's a coalition. The leader of the party, Angela Merkel, is the current Chancellor of Germany. So as Adolf Hitler had written 90 years ago, German politicians still continue the practice of debasing religion as a means that can be exploited to serve political interests or rather, Hitler's words, commercial interests. In Russia, Christian institutions were never actually undermined to the degree that, degree that they are now in Germany and America, but rather when the Bolshevik Jews came to power, they immediately began butchering priests and nuns and other religious officials, and closed the churches to turn them into theaters or warehouses. They were reopened for propaganda purposes after the Second World War, but then they were hardly Christian, being under communist ideological control.
However, the synagogues remained open through the entire communist period, and anti-Semitism was condemned by the Soviets. On page 109 of the International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem, by Henry Ford and the editors of the Dearborn Independent, we read the following, which is a reference to Jewish protests against the publication of the International Jew as a weekly series of articles in the Dearborn Independent. And they say that the most persistent denials have been offered to the statement that Bolshevism is everywhere, that Bolshevism everywhere in Russia or the United States is Jewish. In these denials, we have perhaps one of the most brazen examples of the double intent referred to above. The denial of the Jewish character of Bolshevism is made to the Gentile. But in the confidence and secrecy of Jewish communication, or buried in the Yiddish dialect, or obscurely hidden in the Jewish national press, we find the proud assertion made to their own people that Bolshevism is Jewish. Jewish propaganda has only two straws to grasp in the terrible tale of murder, immorality, robbery, and forced starvation and hideous humanism which make the present Russian situation in 1921 impossible to describe and all but impossible to comprehend. One of these straws is that Kerensky, the man who eased in the, op- in the opening wedge of Bolshevism, he eased in the opening wedge of Bolshevism, is not a Jew. Indeed, one of the strongest indications that Bolshevism is Jewish is that the Jewish press emphasizes so fiercely the alleged Gentilism of at least two of the revolutionary notables. It may be cruel to deny them two among hundreds, but merely saying so cannot change Kerensky's nationality. His name is Adler. His father was a Jew and his mother a Jewess. Adler, the father, died and the mother married a Russian named Kerensky whose name the young child took. Among the radicals who employed him as a lawyer, among the forces that put him forward to drive the first nail into Russia's cross, among the soldiers who fought with him, his Jewish descent and character have never been doubted. And Ford gives us a short dialogue. Well, but there is Lenin, our Jewish publicists say. Lenin, the head of it all, the brains of it all, and Lenin is a Gentile. We've got you there. Lenin is a Gentile. And Ford says that perhaps he is. But why do his children speak Yiddish? Why are his proclamations put forth in Yiddish? Why did he abolish the Christian Sunday and establish by law the Jewish Saturday Sabbath? The explanation of all this may be that he married a Jewess. The fact is that he did. But another explanation may be that he himself is a Jew. Certainly he is not the Russian nobleman he has always claimed to be. The statements he has made about his identity thus far have been lies. The claim that he is a Gentile may be unfounded too. And of course the Jews were very successful 
in masking the true identity of Lenin as a Gentile. And it has been proven since then, since Ford wrote this in recent decades, it has been proven that Lenin was indeed a Jew, although Jews continued to deny him for many decades after Ford wrote this. Ford continues, No one has ever doubted Trotsky's nationality. He is a Jew. His name is Bronstein. Recently, the Gentiles were told that Trotsky, and of course, Ford uses the word Gentile in the sense of non-Jew, the Gentiles were told that Trotsky had said he wasn't much of anything in religion. That may be, but still he must be something, else why are the Russian Christian churches turned into stables, slaughterhouses, and dancing halls, while the Jewish synagogues remain untouched? And we have documentary evidence of that in part. And why are the Christian priests and ministers made to work on roads, while Jewish rabbis are left to their clerical privileges? Trotsky may not be much of anything in religion, but he is a Jew nevertheless. This is not mere Gentile insistence that he shall be considered a Jew whether or not. It is straight Jewish teaching that he is. In a further discussion on religion or race, we shall show that even without religion, Trotsky is and is considered by all Jewish authorities to be a Jew. An apology, and and we won't get that far in our quote from Henry Ford, but it is an interesting presentation that we might present one day in the future because we see that the definition of a Jew was being debated in the United States Congress by Henry Cabot Lodge himself in the early 20th century. And the Jews were insisting that Jews were only a religion. And on the other hand, out of the other side of their mouth, they claimed to be God's chosen people by their race. So the Jews, of course, are liars. The shame of it all is that Lodge had expressed the desire to count Jews as Jews in the census if it could be shown that they were a race. And the Jews prevailed. They were never counted as Jews. They've always been classified under other races. And Jews are only considered a religion. And they've been able to get away with much treachery under that guise, which is an outright lie. The Jews are a mixed race, but in the sense that they pass the same genes down from generation to generation, which are peculiar from other races, they are a race. Ford continues, An apology must be made here for repeating well-known facts, yet so many people are not even now aware are not even now aware of the true meaning of Bolshevism, that, at the risk of monotony, we shall cite a few of the salient facts. The purpose, however, is not alone to explain Russia, but to throw a warning light on conditions in the United States. The Bolshevik government, as it stood late this summer when the latest report was smuggled through to certain authorities, shows up the Jewish domination of the whole affair. It has changed very slightly since the beginning. We give only a few terms to indicate the proportion. It must not be supposed that non-Jewish members of the government are Russian. 
Very few Russians have anything to say about their own country these days. The so-called dictatorship of the proletariat, in which the proletariat has nothing whatever to say, is Russian only in the sense that it is set up in Russia. It is not Russian in that it springs from or includes the Russian people. It is the international program of the protocols, which might be put over by a minority in any country and which is being given a dress rehearsal in Russia. Now the Jews openly destroyed the religious and social institutions of Russia in a very abrupt manner, unless of course they were Jewish institutions. However, in Europe and the United States, they have used completely different methods to infiltrate and undermine those institutions. When there is opposition, what had happened to Bob Jones University is a good example of the result. Perhaps later in this presentation of the protocols, we will have an opportunity to discuss the subversion of Christian institutions by Jews from within. We will not take the time to do it now. Protocol number one continued, and we will only read one further sentence. With the present instability of all authority of of all authority, our power will become or will be more unassailable than any other because it will be invisible until it is so well rooted that no cunning can undermine it. Unless we can get rid of electricity. <coughs> Where government power is not diminished through liberalism quickly enough for the Jews, then it's delivered, it, it's diminished through war. The Rothschild banks instigated the American Civil War, which was the primary factor causing the breakdown of colonial society as we knew it, and the destruction of the South. And it instilled contempt for the government in generations of Americans ever since which is an important factor in the plan of the protocols, as we see here. Then later in that same century, the banks and industrial corporations of the United States and Britain militarized Japan and instigated the war between Russia and Japan. But the corresponding first revolution in Russia nevertheless failed. And yes, the first attempt by the Jews to overthrow the Russian government in 1905 came right smack in the middle of the war with Japan. And when it failed, many of the Jews who took part in it found refuge in New York, where they would await another opportunity. Their second and successful attempt came right smack in the middle of the war with Germany, and they were financed by New York bankers who were also Jews. In the United States, Social unrest agitated the nation throughout the period of the First World War, but was organized and repackaged as a positive force, feminism, Rosie the Riveter, Rosie the Riveter as a positive force during the Second War. The religious principles of the people were by then virtually disintegrated. Then further unrest came on the heels of the Korean War, when right afterwards the civil rights movement, Brown versus Board of Education, and all of that began, forced integration. The religious principles of the people were disintegrated, and right after the Korean War, 
we had further social unrest. That wasn't an accident. Then there were social revolutions organized as media events all throughout the war in Vietnam. In the 1960s and 70s, the American media worked in virtual collusion with dissidents organized by Jews to make opposition to the established order seem much bigger than it actually was. The meat, and there's very little proper historical revisionism in this instance, in this light. The media magnified the anti-war demonstrations of the 1960s to sway public opinion and influence legislation. The democratic legislators always seem to act with knee-jerk reactions to media-induced frenzy, so they are not left behind perceived trends. So even when they are not directly controlled, they are nevertheless willing pawns for Jewish subversives. And nobody ever suspects the media because the agencies are few and there is never any real oversight. On the part of democratic politicians, Adolf Hitler wrote about this phenomenon as well in Volume 2, Chapter 1 of Mein Kampf, where he was criticizing the reactionary methods of the older political parties. Those people are always influenced by one and the same preoccupation when they introduce something new into their program or modify something already contained in it. That preoccupation is directed towards the results of the next election. This is Adolf Hitler in the 1920s. The moment these artists in parliamentary government had the first glimmering of a suspicion that their darling public may be ready to kick up its heels and escape from the harness of the old party wagon, they began to paint the shafts with new colors. On such occasions, the party astrologists and the horoscope readers, the so-called experienced men and experts, come forward. For the most part, they are old parliamentary hands whose political schooling has furnished them with ample experience. They can remember former occasions when the masses showed signs of losing patience, and they now diagnose the menace of the similar situation arising. Resorting to their old prescription, they form a committee. They go around among the darling public and listen to what is being said. They dip their noses into the newspapers and gradually begin to scent what it is that their darlings, the broad masses, are wishing for what they reject and what they are hoping for. The groups that belong to each trade or business and even office employees are carefully studied and their innermost desires are investigated. The malicious slogans of the opposition from which danger is threatened are now suddenly looked upon as worthy of reconsideration and it often happens that these slogans to the great astonishment of those who originally coined and circulated them now appear to be quite harmless and indeed are to be found among the dogmas of the old parties everything you see bragged about in the protocols you see Adolf Hitler point out in Mein Kampf and I'm sure he didn't use the protocols as his guide for writing Mein Kampf the two documents are opposed to each other, contrary to each other, a hundred percent, as much as the Gospel of Luke and the Talmud are opposed to each other. 
not to compare Hitler to Luke, of course, but Hitler had Christian principles and a firm grounding in understanding the political process that he had studied for such long hours in his youth. He observed these things that right-wing media pundits in the United States didn't notice until the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Adolf Hitler wrote about them a hundred years ago. He observed this, exactly what happened with the political parties in America the last 50 years, he saw happen in Germany a hundred years ago. And he wrote all about it. And it's the antithesis to the Protocols of Satan. Repeating the one sentence from the Protocols which we mean to address here, with the present instability of all authority, our power will be more unassailable than any other, because it will be invisible until it is so well rooted that no cunning can undermine it. Adolf Hitler noticed this trend among the political parties of Germany that they resorted to the newspapers and the perceived public opinion in order to devise platforms that would allow them to stay in power come election day, and that was over a hundred years ago. But Hitler also understood that it was the media which controlled that public opinion in the first place through what they report as well as how they chose to report it. So the politicians aren't learning what the public wants. The politicians are actually learning what the controllers of the media want. Here is what Hitler says in relation to this in Volume 1, Chapter 3 of Mein Kampf. Whatever definition we may give of the term public opinion, which he had a low opinion of, only a very small part of it originates from personal experience or individual insight. The greater portion of it results from the manner in which the public matters have been presented to the people through an overwhelmingly impressive and persistent system of information. And he puts information in quotes as if he doesn't really think it's information. In the religious sphere, the profession of a denominational belief is largely the result of education, usually. While the religious yearning itself slumbers in the soul, so too the political opinions of the masses are the final results of influences systematically operating on human sentiment and intelligence in virtue of a method which is applied sometimes with almost incredible thoroughness and perseverance. The political opinions of the masses are the result of the programming they receive from the newspapers. By far the most effective branch of political education, which in this connection is best expressed by the word propaganda, is carried on by the press. The press is the chief means employed in the process of political enlightenment. And he adds a dose of sarcasm to the quotes around that word also. It represents a kind of school for adults. The educational activity, however, is not in the hands of the state, but in the churches, I'm sorry, in the clutches of power, 
which are partly of a very inferior character, and it's more than just a small part. While still a young man in Vienna, I, meaning Hitler, had excellent opportunities for coming to know the men who owned this machine for mass instruction, as well as those who supplied it with the ideas it distributed. At first I was quite surprised when I realized how little time was necessary for this dangerous great power within the state to produce a certain belief among the public, and in doing so, the genuine will and convictions of the public were often completely misconstrued. It took the press only a few days to transform some ridiculously trivial matter into an issue of national importance, while vital problems were completely ignored or filched and hidden away from public attention. And we see this today as a common tactic used by the American media, that whenever something politically serious is about to happen, like Hillary testifying about Benghazi, where if the public were informed, perhaps the consensus would go against the interests who control the media, the issue is ignored. Then, some trivial event is given magnified publicity in order to distract the public from the gravely consequential issues. And the media does it all the time. Continuing with Mein Kampf, and Hitler realized it a hundred years ago. Continuing with Mein Kampf, the press succeeded in the magical art of producing names from nowhere within the course of a few weeks. They made it appear that the great hopes of the masses were bound up with those names. And so they made those names more popular than any man of real ability could ever hope to be in a long lifetime. All this was done despite the fact that such names were utterly unknown and indeed have never been heard of even up to a month before the press publicly emblazoned them. The press creates our image of individuals, of heroes, of politicians. They do it all the time. They pull these people right out of thin air and make them sensations overnight. At the same time, old and tried figures in the political and other spheres of life quickly faded from the public memory and were forgotten as if they were dead, though still healthy and in the enjoyment of their full vigor. Or sometimes such men were so vilely abused that it looked as if their names would stand as per permanent symbols of the worst kind of baseness in order to estimate properly the really pernicious influence with which the press can exercise, one had to study this infamous Jewish method whereby honorable and decent people were besmirched with mud and filth in the form of low abuse and slander from hundreds and hundreds of quarters simultaneously, as if commanded by some magic formula. These highway robbers would grab at anything which might serve their evil ends. And this is another tactic which we see employed continually in American politics these last dozen decades.
While the substantial crimes of truly corrupt men, like an Obama or a Clinton, are ignored, and even their wives are set up to continue after them. And good men, or at least more noble men, are continually besmirched and discredited for minor offenses, like attending a Klan rally in the 60s. Gary Hart for a possible dalliance with a single college co-ed when Bill Clinton was a serial rapist and got a free ride. (laughs) It's incredible. And this is primarily why the power of the Jews is more unassailable than any others. In the 1920s, radio was a relatively new media, and by referring to the press, Hitler intended to describe the newspapers and other print media. The newspapers and print media Hitler called an overwhelmingly impressive and persistent system of information, sarcastically placing the word information in quotes. Imagine if Hitler had seen the information systems which exist today in television and the Internet, and which are used for the same purposes that the newspapers which he criticizes were used in the 1920s. So it's no wonder that the power of the Jews is more unassailable than any other. Because through the media, they control the minds and the thoughts of the people. As Hitler described it, their public opinion does not come from personal experience or individual insight, but rather it comes from the information they are given by the Jewish-controlled media. In Adolf Hitler's time, Jews were indeed in control of the largest newspaper concerns. It's not like the Jews had a couple of newspapers in Germany in the 19-teens and 20s. In Dr. Wiebe's booklet, Germany and the Jewish Problem, we find the following heading, we, we find the following statements under the heading, The Jews in the German Press. Jews have always possessed a special aptitude for journalism and the organization of press work. Accordingly, they played a prominent part in the establishment of German newspapers. Hardly any other function has given them so much power as their influence on the press. They soon proved, however, that they had little or no interest in that sense of high moral obligation, which is the duty of those who are responsible for influencing public opinion. On the contrary, their interests were primarily centered in the rich possibilities for material gain. If one examines the Jewish-controlled German press of the last decades, one realizes that for purely material reasons, it served a craving for sensation, for vanity and the lower instincts of the masses. Circulation was increased in proportion as newspapers undermined in the most grave manner all respect for morals, law, and order. The two largest German newspaper concerns were, before 1933, in Jewish hands, Ulstein and Mausa. Both these firms 
were founded by Jews and their directorates and editorial staffs were comprised of nearly all Jews. And then under the heading Olstein, Publishers and Printers, Dr. Wiebe says, The circulation of this largest newspaper concern averaged 4 million daily. They published five large daily newspapers, several weekly papers, and many periodicals and magazines of every description. The Ulstein News Agency influenced a great number of provincial papers, the same way they do here in America. In addition to this, Ulstein possessed also an extensive book publishing branch, the same way that Jewish newspaper companies do here in America. The whole of the shares in this vast concern were held by the five Jewish Ulstein brothers. The directorate consisted of these brothers, three other Jews, and only two Christians. I would think that's a high number. The largest newspaper concern, the largest newspaper issued by this concern was the Berliner Morgenpost, which had a larger circulation than any other German paper, more than 600,000 daily. Besides a Jewish editor, this paper had, in 1927, ten other Jews as members of the editorial staff. The editorial staff of the Voschitz Zeitung, an extremely influential political organ, was in charge of the Jew George Bernhard and 14 Jewish sub-editors. Bernhard, at that time, was keen on making a name for himself in politics. The position in regard to the remaining Ulstein papers was practically the same. And that was a considerable number of papers. Five large daily newspapers, plus many periodicals and magazines, plus the news feeds to many provincial papers which were under ownership by others. Then under the heading, Mosa Publishers and Printers. This firm was, as far as size is concerned, not so important as Ulstein. Its daily circulation was 350,000. Established and maintained as a family concern by the Eastern Jew, Rudolf Mosa, formerly Moses. Its influence was nonetheless very great. Its chief publication was the Berliner Tageblatt, established long before 1933. It was this paper which for many years was looked upon abroad as representative of German public opinion. The editor of this paper was the Jew Theodore Wolf, who also took a prominent part in politics. Apart from him, the important positions on the editorial staff were filled by 17 other Jews. In five important capitals outside the Reich, the Berliner Tageblatt was represented by Jews. Another paper issued by this concern was the Acht er Abendblatt, another politically influential publication in which the Jews were dominant, were dominant with the chief editor and eight co-religionists as sub-editors. It was only natural that the rest of the German press could play only a very insignificant part when compared with the activities of these two mammoth concerns. Neither the provincial press, with its economic disunity, nor the publishing house of August Scherl, the only large Christian undertaking in the capital,
were able to exercise influence sufficient to seriously challenge the united power of these two big all-Jewish undertakings. That the Marxist party press was overwhelmingly directed and influenced by Jews has already been stated above in the part that we didn't read. Moreover, the official press departments of the government, particularly in Prussia, were also in charge of Jews. The three most important press departments in Prussia, the largest of the German federal states, were, in 1930, for example, in charge in the charge of four Jews, meaning that four Jews controlled these three most important press departments. It was therefore only a matter of course that the professional and economic organizations of German journalists came entirely under Jewish influence. The largest of these organizations, the Reichsverband der Deutschen Press, the German Press Association, was directed for many years until 1933 by the Jewish chief editor of the Volkisch Zeitung, George Bernhard, in the in the Verein Berliner Press, the Berlin Press Union, which was the leading social and benefit society for all journalists in the capital. The right to nominate and elect members had been vested from 19... I'm sorry, from 1888 in the hands of a purely Jewish committee. Finally, the official organization of freelance German writers was controlled by a directorate which, in 1928 and 1929, consisted of 90% Jews. Its president was at that time the Jewish publicist Arnold Zwieg, author of the war novel, Streit um den Sergeant in Grisha, in which he foully besmirched the national honor of the German people. In this connection, it is necessary to examine the work and the significance of those Jews who for many years were regarded in Germany and abroad as the most authentic apostles of German publicism. We refer in particular to George Bernard, Theodore Wolff, and Maximilian Hardin. All three were Jews. All three were journalists of surpassing technical skill. Men who, through their masterly handling of the written word alone, were well able to make converts to the ideas they represented. But behind a winning exterior was bidden the same dangerous spirit of denial of all traditional values, of criticism for criticism's sake, the spirit of destruction, disintegration and instability which we have been compelled to recognize as the main characteristics of Jewry in all spheres. It is exceptionally significant that George Bernhard's real profession was that of banker and stock exchange financier. He belonged until shortly before the Great War to social democracy and his whole life displays a remarkable vacillation between the two such contradictory things, such as stock exchange journalism and Marxist activity. Well, if you understand the protocols, those things are not contradictory at all. Then in 1913, he was appointed chief editor of Olstein's Vosius Zeitung. In this position, in two different hours of destiny in Germany's post-war history, he played a calamitous part.
in the critical weeks before the signing of the Versailles Treaty, when the German people and its leaders well nigh unanimously rejected the intolerable and harsh conditions of that dictated peace. He made common cause with those really with those really comparatively few men of public influence who, through the medium of the spoken and printed word, ruthless, ruthlessly suppressed every flickering of the spirit of national resistance and thereby destroyed all hopes of securing more bearable conditions, the power of the press over the minds of the people. One requires only to glance at the old issues of the Vosich, Vosich Zeitung, I'm sorry, I'm probably destroying the pronunciation of that word, for those weeks and months to realize how systematically Bernhard went about this work. Even the most humiliating terms of this treaty, the war guilt clause, he attempted to represent as a mere bagatelle. Thus he wrote, to give only one example, on June 18, 1919, the German reader of the note will most easily be able to reconcile himself with those parts which deal with the historical origin of the war and the question of guilt for it. In other words, I'm a Jew and Germans are guilty. If one regards the matter in this manner, one cannot take the scolding in the war guilt paragraph tragically. With these words, Bernhard attacked the German government from behind, whilst the later was waging a dramatic struggle regarding these points of honor. In particular, the clause relating to war guilt and the release of German officers. It will be understood outside Germany as well that we cannot forget such a betrayal of national interests, such a lack of proper pride and feeling for honor as was displayed by the Jewish journalist Bernhard. In the second case, we already find Bernhard committing open criminal treason. During the occupation of the Rhineland, there arose in the occupied zone a movement supported and forwarded for political reasons by foreign money, which strove to prevent forever the return of the occupied Rhineland to the Reich and to establish its complete economic independence. George Bernhard, with his Vossisch Zeitung, got into contact with these Rhenish separatists. The separatists received from him political advice and financial support. In the year 1930, one of the owners of Alstein, the, the Jew, Dr. Franz Alstein, ostensibly one of the five brothers, published this fact in the periodical Tagebuch. He declared that George Bernhard's agent in Paris, the Jew, Dr. Leo Stahl, had paid a sum of money to Mattis, the leader of the separatists, and that Bernhard himself had corresponded and associated with Mattis. This political scandal forced Bernhard eventually to retire from political journalism. He became, as this is also characteristic, the head of a large department store association. Since 1933, he has been busy abroad publishing an anti-German emigre paper as if a Jew could be an emigre. Theodore Wolff, the editor of the Berliner Tageblatt, behaved in a different but equally objectionable manner. An apparently convinced monarchist during the war, meaning the First World War, there was, after the change of constitution in Germany, no one who reviled and slandered the deposed Hohenzollerns in so evil a manner as Wolff the Hohenzollerns being the Prussian royal family. Even if we could forgive him such an opportunism 
Quite inexcusable is his behavior at the time when the increasing spread of indecency and immorality in Germany forced the government in 1926 to take constitutional steps for the suppression of filthy and otherwise low-grade literature. The intention was, above all, to protect youth from coarsening and indecent influences. Theodore Wolff openly opposed this effort. He condemned the new law and, as a protest, resigned from the Democratic Party, which he had helped to found because they had supported the new measure. In order to understand the whole frivolous irresponsibility of this Jewish publicist, one must know just how far the flooding of the German book and political markets with dirty, pornographic productions had gone. We shall have more to say about this later on. Still more influential than George Bernard and Theodore Wolff, certainly the mightiest man of the pen which Germany had for a generation, was Maximilian Hardin, a brother of Whitting, the previously mentioned Jewish defeatist, and of course we didn't cover that part of Wiebe's book here. With this periodical, Die Zugfunkt, The Future, Zukunft. I'm probably destroying that too. Die Zukunft, the future. He indulged in high politics for more than 20 years. Hardly any other man has shown so much fluctuation in character and principles as he. And we're only with Weeby for a short time here. He began by setting himself up as judge of morality in Imperial Germany, kind of like maybe Larry Flint or Al Goldstein and dealt a death blow to the reputation of the monarchic system by his journalistic scandal-mongering about the Hohenzollern court. During the Great War, he was certainly the only real annexationist in Germany, demanding as the price of victory the whole of Belgium, the French coast opposite England, and the Congo Basin. Then, and, and that's worse, this isn't pornography, this is politics, but I've still got that on my mind, I was going to make that statement in regard to Maximilian Hardin. I'm sorry, in regard to the character mentioned before him, Theodore Wolff. During the Great War, he was certainly the only real annexationist in Germany, demanding as the price of victory the whole of Belgium, the French coast opposite England, and the Congo Basin. Then, when the fortunes of war in 1916 began to turn away from Germany, Hardin also retreated, so he was only an agitator. He attacked German war policy and became an enthusiastic admirer of President Wilson. In 1919, he finally conducted a cowardly campaign against the national resistance to the tyrannical peace treaty terms, naming this resistance artificially forced hysteria and miserable falsehood. So, Maximilian Hardin was basically an, a, a Jewish agent provocateur, playing the part of annexationist and then jumping ship and siding with President Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson was basically a shell. He presented 14 points that America was in a position to enforce, and he didn't follow through with it when Germany capitulated based on Wilson's 14 points and Britain and France 
substituted the much harsher terms of the Versailles Treaty. If President Wilson was a man, and a man of his word, he would have forced Britain and France, because militarily the United States was certainly in a position, and politically as well, if Wilson was a man of his word, he would have forced Britain and France to accept his 14 points, and to make peace with Germany based on them. Because that's why Germany had decided to capitulate. The driving forces of such characterless behavior were vanity and petty selfish ambition. Harden is rightly described by the world-renowned historian Frederick Thiem as the Judas of the American, of, I'm sorry, of the German people. So where the Germans were prominently involved in the German media? They were betrayers of the German people in favor of Jewish international interests. And of course, the Jews in the German media only favored Jewish international interests. So it was in America as well. By the dawn of the 20th century, Jews came to control most of the major and influential newspapers in America. The following is from an article entitled, Facts of Jewish Media Control. And while we do not know the original author, we know from our own studies that the claims the article makes in this respect are true. While the article is somewhat dated, the circumstances it presents have been true throughout the past hundred or so years, and are still true today, even if there have been some changes in the form of the companies described. And I'm only going to read a few short paragraphs from this article. The suppression of competition and the establishment of local monopolies on the dissemination of news and opinion have characterized the rise of Jewish control over America's newspapers. The resulting ability of the Jews to use the press as an unopposed instrument of Jewish policy could hardly be better illustrated than by the examples of the nation's three most prestigious and influential newspapers, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. These three, dominating America's financial and political capitals, are the newspapers which set the trends and the guidelines for nearly all the others. They are the ones which decide what is news and what isn't. At the national and international levels, they originate the news. The others merely copy it. And all three newspapers are in Jewish hands. This isn't so important today as it was before the, the, the popularity of radio and television. But even with the popularity of radio, and television didn't come along until the 1950s, and it really wasn't popular until the 1960s, newspapers were extremely important in setting public opinion, in creating public opinion. The New York Times was founded in 1851 by two Gentiles. And newspapers didn't report on public opinion. Newspapers create public opinion. Henry Raymond and George Jones. After their deaths, it was purchased in 1896 from Jones's estate by a wealthy Jewish publisher, Adolf Ox. He actually came to New York from Tennessee to buy the New York Times. He was a reverse carpetbagger. His great-grandson, Arthur Ox Salzberger, is the paper's current publisher and CEO. The executive editor is Max Frankel, and the managing editor 
is Joseph Lelifeld. Both of the later are also Jews. The Salzberger family also owns, through the New York Times, 33 other newspapers, including the Boston Globe, 12 magazines, including McCall's and Family Circle, with circulations of more than 5 million each, 7 radio and TV broadcasting stations, a cable TV system, and three book publishing companies. The New York Times News Service transmits news stories, features, and photographs from the New York Times by wire to 506 other newspapers, news agencies, and magazines. And it seems like this article is being written in the 1970s, but I couldn't identify it. Of similar national importance is the Washington Post, which, by establishing its leaks throughout government agencies in Washington, has an inside track on news involving the federal government. When they wanted to depose Richard Nixon and discredit Nixon, the Washington Post was, of course, instrumental. The Washington Post, like the New York Times, had a non-Jewish origin. It was established in 1877 by Stilson Hutchins, purchased from him in 1905 by John McLean, and later inherited by Edward McLean. In June 1933, however, at the height of the Great Depression, the newspaper was forced into bankruptcy. It was purchased at a bankruptcy auction by Eugene Meyer, a Jewish financier. The Washington Post is now run by Catherine Meyer Graham, Eugene Meyer's daughter. She is, and, and this is going to help us date this article to about 19 the early 1980s, I believe, she is the principal stockholder and the board chairman of the Washington Post Company. In 1979, she appointed her son, Donald, publisher of the paper. He now also holds the posts of president and CEO of the Washington Post Company. The Washington Post Company has a number of other media holdings in newspapers, television, and magazines, most notably the nation's number two weekly news magazine, Newsweek, the number one, of course, being Time. The Wall Street Journal, which sells 1.8 million copies each weekday, is the nation's largest circulation daily newspaper. It is owned by Dow Jones and Company Incorporated, a New York corporation which also publishes 24 other daily newspapers. So these three newspapers are actually dozens and dozens of newspapers, and many of the major papers like the Boston Globe and the weekly financial tabloid Barron's, among other things. The chairman and CEO of Dow Jones is Peter Kahn, who is a Jew. Kahn also holds the posts of chairman and publisher of the Wall Street Journal, which has an entirely Jewish editorial staff, as far as I ever remembered it. Dorothy Rabinowitz. Brett Stevens is a Jew, even though he doesn't sound or look like one. His former job was with the Jerusalem Post. Most of New York's other major newspapers are in no better hands than the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. The New York Daily News is owned by Jewish real estate developer Mortimer B. Zuckerman. He also owns U.S. News & World Report and the Atlantic Monthly. The Village Voice is the personal property of Leonard Stern, the billionaire Jewish owner of the Hartz Mountain pet supply firm. And we could go on and on with that.
We are presently constrained by time, but perhaps soon we will demonstrate that nearly all of the major newspapers in England were also fully under Jewish control at an early period. And we have a book that does that for us, published in the 1930s. Before this series ends, we will also discuss the early Jewish control of the electronic media. Near today, a half dozen Jewish-controlled and mostly Jewish-staffed companies, at least at all of the important managerial levels, control over 95% of the world's media, both print and electronic, both traditional and internet, even sources that you wouldn't think were Jewish. The alternative media websites, such as Breitbart.com, are controlled by Jews. And I think Stormfront. I'm kidding. Sort of. The important point which we sought to make this evening is this, that in a world of democracy, whoever controls public opinion controls the democratic governments. But the Jews were already in a position to control at least most of the press, even before the governments of the West became democracies. They were in this position because they had already controlled the English and international banks, many of the other banks of Europe and America, and controlling the money power, they could naturally control the power of the press as well. In that manner, their control of governments remains invisible, and those who make the money, those who have the power of gold, manipulate the people through the media which they own by creating their opinions for them. The Jews, the, the news, I'm sorry, the Jews media. The news media does not report public opinion. It creates it. Anybody who thinks that the news media reports public opinion is stuck on stupid, is naive. The Jews knew that they could achieve what they boasted of here in the protocols. They understood the power of printed propaganda from their experience in support of the humanists in the Reuschlin affair and in the support of the Reformation, when the printing press was new, which we have discussed here rather exhaustively. Then it was the French Revolution and the Social Revolutions of 1848. These were all trial runs for the Jews. During those, the printed media played a crucial role. But in most places in Europe, the Jews themselves could not participate in the media openly until after 1848, until after their emancipation spread out of France to the rest of Europe. But from that time, once they achieved their emancipation and could act openly, even the Encyclopedia Judaica admits, and I quote, that Jewish financiers, in partnership, and they're writing of the year 1852, in partnership with members of the nobility in Austria, founded new industries and banks, outstanding among them the credit installed. Jews founded leading newspapers, and many became journalists. By the dawn of the 20th century and the publication of the Protocols, the Jews were already the masters of the media. We will return to the series with the discussion of the so-called Pax Judaica, 
which is the next paragraph in the protocols. The arrogance of liberalism to declare liberty to the people, so long as that liberty conforms to the ideals defined by world Jewry. I pray that these articles continue to be informative and put the protocols of Satan into their proper historical perspective. The Bible is the word of God. And the protocols are a description of the rule of the Antichrist that the Bible warned us about, but not in the way that most so-called pastors can even yet perceive. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, true Israel, and good night.